Hey there folks, my name is Drew Ray and this is episode 47 of Disastercast, a podcast about scary things and how to stop them happening. It's been a little bit of a hiatus since the last episode and I apologise for that. This episode is recorded on January 27, the anniversary of the Apollo 1 fire. We'll be discussing that accident a bit later on in the episode. First though, I think it's time we had a little chat about causality. As regular listeners know, I get a little irate when I see safety practitioners being self-congratulatory about punishing people who don't follow safety rules. The train of reasoning in their head goes something like this. Safety rules are designed to keep people safe. So if people don't follow safety rules, things must be less safe follows that accidents are caused by people not following the safety rules. We need to make people follow the safety rules, so we need to punish people who don't follow the safety rules. There are all sorts of logical and social problems with that sort of reasoning, but at its heart is a basic misunderstanding of cause and effect. Causality is so intuitively obvious to us as humans that we don't often stop to think and realise just what a fuzzy concept it actually is. If something happens, it must have a cause, right? Let's take something really basic. I roll a fair six-sided die and it comes up six. What caused the six? From one point of view, this was an event predetermined by the shape of the die, the movements of my hand, the interaction between the molecules of the die and the molecules of the floor and maybe the air currents in the room. There were a million tiny little causes all acting together. From another point of view, this was a totally random event. There was no particular reason for a 6 rather than a 5, a 4, or any other number from 1 to 6. We don't need a cause to explain the 6, and any encapsulation of the causes isn't going to help us predict what the next role will produce, so why bother talking about cause? Some people might take a step back and blame me instead. Sure, the particular outcome was random, but I was the one who cast the die. No dice roll, no six. They could even blame my choice of a six-sided die. Sure, a 20-sided die, a d20, could have produced a roll of six, but it would have been far less likely, and a d4 couldn't have rolled a six at all. And those of you wondering what the heck I'm talking about with 20 and 4-sided dice are free to suggest that this whole situation is caused by a misspent childhood with role-playing games, instead of more wholesome statistical endeavours like poker or horse racing. One attempt that people have made to try to clarify this whole causality mess was to introduce the idea of counterfactuals. A counterfactual says that a first event causes a second event, if stopping the first event stops the second event. So rolling the die causes the six, because if I hadn't rolled the die, there wouldn't have been a six. Counterfactuals seem mathematically neat, but they come with all sorts of problems. One of the big difficulties is that outside of controlled experiments, we can't really investigate what would have happened if conditions had been different. It's quite possible that even if we stop some of the causes, the accident would have happened anyway. So-called human error is a great example of this. 
let's take a guy, we'll call him Bill. And Bill's been in an accident. We could say that Bill caused the accident because he didn't follow the maintenance procedure properly. That's a counterfactual. We're saying that if Bill had followed the procedure, there wouldn't have been an accident. But what if all the conditions for the accident were there, just waiting for someone, anyone, not to follow the procedure? No matter how good the procedure is, no matter how good the work conditions are, no matter how diligent the people are, eventually someone was going to not follow the procedure. And wham, the accident happens. Just because Bill followed the procedure, that doesn't mean that the accident wouldn't have happened. It might not have happened at that particular time and in that particular place, but it would still have happened in the same way. The other big problem with counterfactuals is that, technically speaking, every single detail of the universe is a counterfactual cause. If anything at all had been different, the accident wouldn't have happened in the way that it did. If the sun hadn't come up that morning, no accident. If it had snowed and the worksite was closed for the day, no accident. So a sunrise and the lack of snow significant causes of the accident? Now at this point you're probably thinking, you're taking this a bit far, Drew. There has to be some sort of common sense applied to decide what's a significant cause and what isn't. And that's exactly the point I'm making. There's no scientific, mathematical or engineering process that can tell you what a significant cause of an accident is. There's no such objective thing as the root cause, or the true cause, or even the significant causes. These are all entirely social constructs, not mathematical constructs. Significance comes from the people doing the investigating, not from the process of investigation. You can't investigate and find out that a person was responsible for an accident. You can decide that a person is responsible, but that's a social judgement, not an expert determination. It's an exercise of power, not an engineering calculation. So far I haven't actually said anything new or controversial, by the way. This is not quite a consensus, but it's certainly at least a majority opinion amongst people who seriously study the way people investigate accidents. But let's get controversial and talk about a bigger problem with causality. In Western society, we mix up causality and blame all the time. So a satirical magazine publishes cartoons mocking Islam and is attacked by terrorists. Did they bring this on themselves? Read any article discussing it, and you'll see that they use the language of causality to actually talk about responsibility and blame. I struggled with this myself, I'm pretty sure everyone does. I was about to start my next sentence with, from a purely technical point of view, when I realised that there is no purely technical point of view. So let me try again. In terms of probabilities, a magazine that doesn't restrict what it publishes based on who it offends is more likely to be attacked. In terms of probabilities, when people attack magazines in the name of religious offence, the cited religion is more likely to be Islam. But neither of those are technical or objective statements. Because even the selection of those two particular probabilities to talk about is a social and political choice. 
A similar problem comes up when discussing things like sexual assault. There are things that individual women can do to influence their personal odds of being attacked. But choosing those particular factors to talk about, particularly if you're a political figure capable of influencing broader social factors that don't restrict the choices of individual women, is an exercise in social construction of responsibility, not an objective discussion of risk. That's why when a male politician says that women are less likely to be assaulted if they don't go out drinking at night, they're both factually accurate and making a subjective and offensive value judgment. Do you get the point I'm making here? If you think of causality entirely in terms of conditional probabilities, you always have a very, very large number of things that you can call causes. When you pick a subset of those to talk about, you're making a value judgment about responsibility, which goes hand in hand with blame. Let's turn this around though, because in safety, the reason people talk about causes is ostensibly because they care about preventing future accidents. Now, that's not always the case. Sometimes people are blatant that it's really about who makes a compensation payout. But let's be charitable and assume that most people working in safety care about, you know, safety. You can temporarily stop an accident by changing any of the circumstances of the accident. The accident may still happen, though, at a different time or in a different way, so you really need to make a big enough change that the accident's unlikely to happen at all. What circumstances you can choose to change is based on two things. The first is how big a change you can get for your investment in time and money. And the second is your set of socially constructed values about which changes are significant and important. And so, back to the beginning, as regular listeners know, I get a little irate when I see safety practitioners being self-congratulatory about punishing people who don't follow safety rules. The behaviour of individuals is one of many, many causal factors in accidents. And individual behaviour can be changed. With great care with great expense, and with great uncertainty. Walk into any workplace and ask yourself what's the easiest thing to change, with the most certainty that you've actually changed it in a way that makes things safer, and I can guarantee that the answer is not the people. If on top of that, a safety practitioner thinks that human psychology is simple enough that they can shape it by punishing people who break rules, then they've got no hope of actually positively influencing behaviour. So that only leaves the second reason for choosing what to focus on, socially constructed values. And so safety practitioners who are self-congratulatory about punishing people are essentially displaying their own values, placing pride in their choice to blame without evidence, to punish without justice, and to exercise power in order to harm others. And those are values that I'm pretty happy to oppose. As a researcher, I'm sincerely interested in understanding how accidents come about. I believe that we can understand accidents better, and that we can make them happen less often. But I don't think there's an objective answer to the question of whether human error should be considered a significant cause of accidents. I do know, though, that blaming and punishing individuals is a direct obstacle to me as a researcher because it gets in the road of understanding causality. Okay, diatribe over. 
let's talk about Apollo 1. You may have noticed that NASA has never been great at consistently naming their missions. Officially, there was never an Apollo 1, 2 or 3. So the mission we're talking about was called Apollo 204, sometimes abbreviated to AS204, the serial number of the Saturn launch vehicle being used. After the accident, it was retrospectively named Apollo 1, and the three prior unmanned launches of the same type of launch vehicle were sort of shoehorned into Apollo 2 and 3, so the next mission after that was Apollo 4. Go figure. In 1957, the Soviet Union launched Sputnik, the first man-made object into orbit. This came as a bit of a surprise to the USA, and a fairly unpleasant one, not least because the launch vehicle for Sputnik was an RX-7 intercontinental ballistic missile. This was not friendly scientific competition, it was clear demonstration of military capability. The US launched their own satellite a bit later, but that was quickly trumped by a Soviet unmanned probe to the moon. And then in April 1961, the Soviets put Yuri Gagarin into orbit. So not only were the US beaten again, but their first manned space flight in early May, um, that was Alan Shepard, was just one of those suborbital up and down affairs. It didn't actually even make orbit. So the Mercury program had had an explicit goal to beat the Soviets to manned spaceflight. And it had failed, and pretty obviously in front of the whole world. So late that month, JFK confirmed the Apollo program, which had been under development with Eisenhower, but probably wasn't going to go ahead until this point, when JFK made a big speech committing the US to putting men on the moon by the end of the decade. I find it rather amazing that casualties were actually pretty low during the space race. Given this absolute crash program with all the national pride running on it. Prior to 1967, the Soviets lost one cosmonaut trainee that was in a fire during an endurance experiment, and the Americans lost three astronauts, but all of them in training jet crashes. Between the two space programs, only five workers had been killed in industrial accidents including three in a single event when a stage of a Delta rocket exploded during assembly. Meanwhile, between 1961 when Apollo was announced, and 1967 the Apollo 1 accident, Project Gemini completed ten successful manned missions. Gemini 6 and 6A had some hiccups, and Gemini 8 aborted part of its mission for an emergency landing, but otherwise it was pretty smooth sailing. By the time of Apollo 1, the Saturn V rockets for Apollo had completed numerous unmanned tests, and it was time for a series of progressively ambitious Apollo missions. January 27, 1987, was a day of testing. Specifically, the Space Vehicle Plugs Out Integrated Test Operational Checkout Procedures. This was basically a complete practice run for the mission, except that it was on the ground, and there was no fuel in the tanks. The plan was for the test to conclude with a practice of the emergency evacuation procedure, so that the astronauts would be ready for the more dangerous tests that actually involved rocket fuel. According to the test plan, tests with rocket fuel were dangerous, tests without rocket fuel weren't dangerous. Hmm. 
There's nothing else that could go wrong in a pressure vessel filled with oxygen and electronic equipment 300 feet off the ground, was there? The subsequent investigation took two months. In comparison to aircraft accident investigations, where the investigators are trying to piece the plane back together, much of the technical investigation involved slowly taking apart the command module to work out what had happened, and the results were inconclusive. What we do know is this. The Apollo command module was filled with a 100% oxygen atmosphere. A spark, presumably an electrical fault of some sort, but we don't really know what, started a fire which spread through the webbing, velcro, and other flammable material in the cabin. This fire increased the pressure in the cabin, which made it impossible to open the hatch, which opened inward. There was a pressure relief valve, but it was operated from a position near the starting point of the fire, and in any case would have been insufficient to reduce the pressure. Outside the module, uh, the area was enclosed, it was sort of a room built around the capsule, and that area quickly filled with smoke. The ground staff didn't have suitable equipment to operate in a smoke-filled environment, so they had to alternate between trying to rescue the astronauts and rushing outside to breathe and get more equipment. All three astronauts died before they could escape or be rescued. So much for causes, right? According to the microphone recordings, two of the pilots were moving around shortly before the fire. What were they doing? We don't know. The recordings are inconclusive. Did they try to open the hatch when the fire started? We don't know. The inside and outside handles were linked, so any evidence of handle movement was destroyed by the rescuers. Which bit of equipment started the fire? We don't know. There was evidence of arcing all round the area the fire started, but no way to know whether any arcs had preceded the fire. No way to blame the human pilots, no way to blame any specific item of equipment. But remember that for all the glamour of the space race, NASA was primarily a government procurement bureaucracy. How does such an agency make sense of such a disaster? Without identifying specific individual actions or deficient components, they determined that the overall condition of the command module was unnecessarily hazardous, and that poor operating practices had let things get that way. That sounds like a reasonable explanation unless you actually think about it. Isn't that kind of the definition of any accident? Things were unsafe and people let them get that way. That's not really an explanation. It's even quite unclear from the report whether the Apollo program was particularly bad, or if these were just the normal problems you expect on a procurement project of that size. There were quite a few open engineering issues, which you expect on a test program. There were requirements that were slow to adapt to changing conditions, and components that didn't match requirements, which is exactly what you'd expect when requirements are slow to adapt. There were certainly technical improvements which could be made. The reason that the capsule used pure oxygen in the first place was that it was difficult to maintain the right mix of gases during flight, which just added complication and danger. So in the next generation of command modules, they got round this by pressurising the module on the ground with a mix of oxygen and nitrogen, and then in space this would gradually dissipate and be replaced by pure oxygen. Not perfect, but at least the pre-flight and launch would be in a less combustible atmosphere. 
They also replaced a lot of the fittings with non-flammable or self-extinguishing alternatives, and they improved the design of the escape system. Turned out, it was a little bit pointless to have an evacuation routine that only worked when there wasn't a fire. So they did something about that. On the administrative side of things, one clear problem is that no one recognised that the test was dangerous. Project staff had a fixed idea that there were safe tests and risky tests, and this was one of the safe ones. Their solution was to create an independent office of flight safety, all ready to be criticised after Apollo 13, Challenger and Columbia. Well, that's it for this episode of DisasterCast. My thanks to everyone who emailed over the holiday period, with special shout-outs to Andy and Stephen, Derek and Cy, and the DisasterCast patrons Hunter, Daniel, Abraham, Patrick, Jesse and John. If you'd like to support the show, you can do so at patreon.com or disastercast.co.uk. Thanks also for the tweets and recommendations, including those by Funny Bunny, Pencil Bloke, and friend of the show, Sean Ellis. I've just finished reading Safety 1 and Safety 2 by Eric Holnagel. I was asked to write a book review of this one for a journal, and I'll include a potted summary in the next episode. Other reading on my desk includes The Staircase by John Templer, subtitled Studies of Hazards, Falls and Safer Design. The title isn't a metaphor, it really is a book entirely about staircase safety. I also have a copy of In the Interests of Safety, The Absurd Rules That Blight Our Lives. The authors of that one, Tracy Brown and Michael Hanlon, are sceptics but not safety researchers, so I'll be interested in what they have to say. Till next time, keep safe.